All right, so to start out, any questions from the study that we have covered, things that have uh, come up in your mind that you would like to chat about? If you don't have one, don't feel bad. I've got these case studies for us to look at, but if you have any questions or thoughts, I'm happy to chat about those for a minute. Keep in mind, the issues we're talking about are largely things, um, although we did talk about some things that are right and wrong issues, uh, a lot of what we're talking about are things where there is room for disagreement among Christians and we can still get along, show love toward each other and those sorts of things, with the goal that all of us are in better alignment with what God says, not just our own ideas, which is a challenge. So, any other thoughts? All right. We will go on to the case study then. Case study number one. Hey there, come on in. Got a few more here. Let's leave these extras on the back table. So, these are designed, not perfectly, but uh, hopefully to help us review some of the things we've talked about, try to prioritize what's most important in these scenarios and think through things along those lines. So, John recently moved to Clawson. He's been looking for a church, appreciates the friendliness and Bible teaching he would get by joining Ambassador. As you talk to him, you find out he likes to listen to Michael W. Smith, Amy Grant, and Hillsong at home. He has noticed we are mostly singing older music at church, but is okay with it. He also doesn't have a problem with social drinking, but is willing to follow the church covenant. What's the most important question to ask John at this point? That's the most important question. I purposefully left that out because I wanted to make sure that we recognize that's the first and most important thing we have to ask. Do you know Christ? How are you sure that you know Christ? Some of those sorts of things. Okay? Other important questions to ask. Okay? Sure? And why would you want to ask that question? Not that I disagree with it, just so I... So all of us have backgrounds, so did you grow up in church, did you not grow up in church, that's going to impact your views and those things. Okay, good. What else? Yes. Yeah, I mean that's a very good question that I think sometimes we overlook. We see someone come and be interested in joining and our first thing is to be excited and say yes, but sometimes it's good to ask the question, have you been, you know, sort of jumping around from church to church? 
and is there some reason for that and it's good to try to work through some of that so okay um, we could potentially switch the order of these two questions so let's go down to the third one first and then go to the second one because you could argue that you could help him grow in Christ likeness even if he doesn't join the church but it would be easier to do in the context of the church so let's go to this question of should we let him join why or why not Okay, on. Okay. All right. Good. Okay, sure. Just based on the things that we see here, do you think that he should be excluded from membership? There's a couple more behind you too, right? Okay. Sure. Good. Alright. So here's one of the one of the tensions. We want to We tend to swing back and forth between two extremes. We get really excited someone wants to join, we want to get them in the door right away. And then if we find something that's a little bit of a concern for us, then we want to drag the process out because we're like, we want to make sure, absolutely sure, everything is in order before they join the church so that there's not something that we have to sort out afterward. But the reality is, none of us are going to have 100% everything correct in our thinking at the point of joining a church. Hopefully we grow over time. So that's where it's important to have a realistic, um, you know, watch over the front door, so to speak. There's a, there's a lock on the front door that's only opened by meeting the basic criteria for being a Christian. There's also the possibility of, of opening the back door and sending them on out if there is an unwillingness to believe and follow what the Bible teaches. And so sometimes churches are really bad about this part, so we build this really high wall at the beginning. Sometimes churches are bad about this, and bad about this, so you end up with churches full of unsaved people. The goal is to have both functioning properly. So, what are the core things that would be essential for joining a church? Okay. Okay, good. Sure. Okay. So if we had to sum up in one word, it would be basically belief, right? Proper belief. And then what should accompany that belief? What should immediately follow that belief, normally speaking? Baptism, yeah. We should also be looking for fruit. But you have salvation and baptism, and those are the biblical requirements before membership. And then when it comes to our church specifically, what are the what are the sort of the hurdles or the steps that would have to be followed? Do you agree with the statement of faith? And what else?
any kind of meetings or anything along those lines. A membership class or specifically a sharing of their testimony with kind of our process would be I would meet with them and then they would meet with me and the deacons and then that would be a sort of a check and evaluation and assessment of where they're at. There are other ways to do that. Sometimes it's someone would give their testimony in front of the whole church and that would certainly be a fine thing to do. Um, but the, the biblical requirements, salvation and baptism, our church's requirements, discussion, membership class, looking at the statement of faith, and then a hearing and assessment of their testimony, does this seem to be genuine? Can I know everything about a person from two meetings or five? No. But you can usually get a sense of, unless someone is a really good liar or just knows all of the right words to say, you can usually get a pretty good sense of where someone is at doctrinally through a couple of conversations if you ask the right questions. Um, so, um, assuming that we talk through that, he's a believer, he's been baptized or is willing to be baptized, we're convinced that he's a Christian, he agrees with everything in the statement of faith, would we let him join? Okay, why not? Okay. Alright, but I'm saying if he agrees to the statement of faith, isn't he demonstrating willingness along those lines? Or, or Okay. Okay. So then, what would be some of the first steps of helping this guy to grow in Christ's likeness, do you think? Okay. What else? Okay. So, um... That would sort of get lumped under if we could call them spiritual disciplines, Christian way of life, reading and meditating the Bible, praying, um, gathering and worship. These are some of the core things that are essential to being a Christian. So we would want to we would want to see them doing that. Um, what are some other um, important things for someone to do? in the context of a church once they become a member. Okay, serve using what does God give all of us? Okay, God gives us spiritual gifts, and so we need to figure out where and how we can use those. And so, uh, you know, those would, those would be important things for us to do. So, what about uh, in light of our study of conscience? The issues that are mentioned in the paragraph are those core issues that are essential to Christianity, or how far down the chain do you think they are in terms of importance or essentialness to actually genuinely being a Christian and a good member of our church? Uh, Right. Right. 
up is because I think the more that we reach out to people who don't have a church background, the more we're going to encounter these sorts of issues. I think we have to have it clear in our minds what's the, where do we start? Excellent, start with the gospel, make sure they believe that. Where do we move on in spiritual growth? Spiritual disciplines, gathering with the body, exercising the ways God's gifted you because that is going to produce the fruit of the Holy Spirit in context of, of gathering with the local church and doing the things God has called us to do, which will in turn fix the things that about people, theoretically, that are issues, and or we can have grace to recognize that some of the things that we feel are issues or should be issues maybe not are, are not issues at this level, but further down here. So, um, I mean, if we did a survey um, in most churches, I don't know where all of you are, I'm not asking for a show of hands. If we did a survey in most churches, and I said, what do you think of someone who listens to oldies on the radio? Is that good? Is that bad? There's going to be a variety of perspectives on that. But someone's assessment of that particular practice do they know God is the first and most important thing? Are they living the Christian life? And then we can start talking about, and so what does that look like specifically in, in, in our context and uh, in life with one another, all those sorts of things. All right, case study two, the unsaved neighbor. You've been trying to get to know your new neighbors. They finally accept an invitation to come over to your house. During their visit, you realize they swear a lot and talk about things that make you uncomfortable. You try to keep the meal moving along so they don't stay too long. But in the conversation, it comes up that you're Christians. Oh, what does that mean? That you don't party and have to, you have to spend all day Sunday at church? You start to answer, but then they notice the time. Sorry we have to go, but maybe you can come to our house next week. This sort of gets into the last chapter that we just looked at, how conscience enables us to navigate evangelistic opportunities. So, would you go visit them? Would you pray before the meal? How would you respond to food or other things that were unpleasant? How would you prep your kids for the uh, experience? I say that last one because it's something that we've had to think through and navigate. Obviously, if your kids are grown or in a different scenario. But let's just start with the first question. Would you go visit them? Okay. I think we would say we probably should, right? All right, even if it's somewhat uncomfortable. Would you pray before the meal? Okay. How would you bring that up with your with your host? Okay. Okay. Sure. Right, right, right. If you didn't at your house, that's going to be a little more tricky to do it at theirs. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> All right. How'd you respond to food or other things that were unpleasant? All right. 
So let's just say, let's switch the situation around. They came over to your house and they brought you a bottle of wine. What'd you say? Okay. How could you politely respond to that? Yeah. Okay. Alrighty. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Good. Um, what if it was something that you're like, man, I cannot eat this. How would you, how would you respond? Yeah. Sure. Yeah, right, right, right. What if, uh, what if you legitimately thought, let's say in your conscience you were convinced that whatever it was they put in front of you, you couldn't eat, like it was offensive to God in some way. I'm not saying you should believe that, but let's say that you had that perspective. Let's say that, let's say that you were convinced some elements of the Old Testament law still applied today, and they offered you barbecue barbecue pork and you're like, I can't eat this. What would you say? Yeah. Okay. Good. Okay. But what if you were convinced it was wrong to eat it? Then what should you do? Yeah, okay. Think about the story of Daniel. Daniel had requirements of the Old Testament law. I can't eat this meat from the king's uh, table. And so, so some people look at that and they turn it into like a, a health plan. It wasn't a health plan, it was just he didn't have to worry about how the vegetables were prepared, whether it was kosher or not, right? It was, so that's why he said, let us eat only vegetables. God blesses that. Again, it's not about a health thing or a diet thing. It's just a practical, like, he was obeying what God expected of him. And he approached it politely. He made a request, you know, those sorts of things. It wasn't, it wasn't this proud, like, I can't do this. I'm better than you. You know, why would you do this to me? That sort of thing. And so, yeah, I think, I think, the attitude that you approach it with and uh, don't violate your conscience, be sensitive to the consciences of others. How would you prep your kids going into this situation? Knowing that someone's going to be swearing or talking about things that are inappropriate or some of those sorts of things, how would you prep your kids? Okay. What would you say in that conversation? Okay.
Without criticizing what you're saying, if you can't get a babysitter, or if, um, and this is the tension, we want to protect our kids, we want to keep them innocent as long as we can, at some point they're going to encounter these things. And so I would make the argument, not necessarily when they're five or six, but when they're a little bit older than that, it may be wise of us, again, not criticizing what all, of you, all you guys have done, I'm just saying, it may be wise of us to say, we have an opportunity to minister. We know this thing's going to come up. We talk to our kids before. We talk to our kids afterward. We teach them a godly perspective about that thing. Because sometimes, I think the danger is, if we isolate too much, people get out into the real world and they're just like, or they just sort of embrace it because they're like, why did my parents hide all these things from me? And that's sort of the opposite effect of what we're going for. We need wisdom in these sorts of things, obviously. Um, there was one other thing that I was thinking about with regards to that. Oh, um, just an observation. Um, I found it uh, extremely intriguing that you can have someone who's like squaring up a storm here they step in a different room and they're completely polite. Knowing that there is the possibility of even unsafe people to control their actions, if things got to a point where it was really a problem, I don't think there would be anything wrong with saying, hey, I've got my kids here, I'd appreciate it to you know, try to be a little more careful with what you're saying. Generally, people respond okay to that. Sometimes they won't, uh, just an example. Uh, when we lived at a house in Allen Park, there was a uh, I could see the group of teenagers hanging out kind of in their driveway, kind of in our driveway, and they were just being really loud and really obnoxious and swearing a lot. And I realized it was outside and whatever. But I also was like, my kids are playing in the backyard, so I was like, guys, I don't want you talking like this. My kids are right here. And of course, they're like, Ugh. but then they ended up packing up and leaving after a bit. And so, you know, should I have done that? Should I have not? I think it's a judgment call, but yes.
along those lines, I think that we need to be willing to recognize that our kids sin just like us, and the way that we respond to that can be a testimony to them, not that they have sinless perfection, but how we respond to those situations can be a, a testimony. Because sometimes we feel like, I have visitors coming over, or I'm going to someone's house, my kids will not do anything wrong, they will not embarrass me. It's not about me, it's about their growth, God's work in them as much as it is about the people we're going to minister to. Quick question there at the bottom of the page. Is their idea of Christianity accurate? If not, how would you fix it? They said, what does that mean? You don't party, you have to spend all day Sunday at church. How would you respond to that statement the next time that you see them? Okay. Good. Yeah. Okay. And I think it's worth saying, I mean, Peter says that you don't party like you used to because you're not because you are a Christian now. So it's worth saying, yeah, there's an element of that that's true. But that's sort of what follows after. Let me tell you about what comes first, you know? So I yeah, think that's a good approach to it. Because again, there are things that we shouldn't do as Christians. But if we only ever emphasize those things, then we are not showing people who Jesus is and what it means to trust in Him. Because we can say, don't party, don't whatever. They can't stop doing that on their own. So we can't fix that until the, the prerequisite is done. Sure, sure. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. All right. Case study three, the disagreeing members. Purely hypothetical. <laughs> Two members are having a conversation in the lobby. One said, why did you bring spicy chili to the last church potluck? You know I don't like to eat it, and I apparently don't like to put in all the words either. I don't like to eat it, and it really bothers me that you did that. The other says, I love spicy food, and I will keep bringing it. What's wrong with good chili? Some other people are standing nearby, and some side with one, and some side with the other. Eventually, everyone has to go home, so the discussion breaks off. What principles were followed or ignored? How should the members who are watching have responded? Okay. Okay. Good. Good. Right. When you have options, <laughs> you don't have to pick at the one thing. That right, right, right. Okay, good, good. What else? Are we allowed to have a difference of opinion about whether spicy chili is good or bad? Yeah, I'm not asking for what those opinions are, I'm just asking. So we can, so it's okay if we disagree. The question, I think, like Jim was pointing out, has a lot to do with the tone of how we do it. 
So if I come out to someone and I'm like, I don't like what you did, and I sort of get in their face about it, that's not helpful. That's not the goal of love and serving other people that we've been talking about through this study. Um, here's another question. Was this an issue of genuine offense leading to sin? No. So let's say that the one person is convinced that spicy chili is morally wrong. I'm not saying, I mean, it sounds ridiculous, but sometimes we're convinced of strange things for a variety of reasons. Spicy chili is morally wrong. Does the other person's having brought it obligate them to eat it and or obligate them to make a big deal about it? No. Now, if someone invited you over your house, and, and that's the only thing that they serve, and you said, I can't eat this. I mean, again, that, that's where we go to the stuff we were talking about in the first one, but, or the second one, but, yes? Yeah. Yeah. So this is a good point. This is, this is the sort of stuff I'm trying to get at. So, do I have to stop eating it at my house? No. If it's in a large group context and I know there's someone that it's a particular issue, do I go out of my way to, like, do I put it on the table and I'm like, hey, I brought this, you know? No. So there's different levels of, of response to that. If you think it's likely that if you bring it at all, they'll be tempted to violate their conscience, don't bring it. If you think it's extraordinarily unlikely that they're going to violate their conscience by you bringing it, you bring it, you don't make a big deal about it. Maybe. Right. Yeah. Sure. And, Right, and so that would be different levels of, of sensitivity and be showing kindness and all those sorts of things. The person who is coming after him for having brought it, they're essentially saying, you can't bring it here, you can't do it at home, you have to do exactly what I would do in the same circumstance. That's the tension, whether it's spicy chili or um, socks for sandals, I mean, that's another easy one. Right, so let's say somebody wore shorts that came to the bottom of their knee, someone wore shorts that came to the top of their knee. Do we approach one another, hang on just a second, do we approach one another with the spirit of judgment or assume the best about other people and move forward from there? Yes.
Well, I think we need to clarify what we mean by offended. If by offended we mean, I'm convinced, let's just throw this out here, I'm convinced women should never wear pants. I see another member wearing pants. Now I'm going to wear pants even though I believe I shouldn't. That would be offense. They've encouraged me to sin. If it bothers me that they do that because of where my conscience is at, but I'm not actually led to do the same thing that they're doing and violate my conscience, then it's not an issue of offense. The problem is we use the word offend like this really bothers me, and the Bible uses it in the sense of like this leads me to sin. So, um, I think I used this example a few weeks back. I think perhaps some of you would be bothered if I showed up Sunday morning and preached wearing a polo shirt. Is there a moral requirement for me not to do that? No. Do I necessarily love a suit and tie? No. Am I willing to do what I am doing for the sake of showing some consideration? Sure. And that's, I think, where Paul in the Bible's comments come in, that we are willing to do what is necessary to promote the unity of the body and evangelize other people, all those sorts of things. So there's sort of this tension here. The person who is bothered by someone doing whatever it is can't come up to them and say, you must stop doing that simply because it bothers me. The person who is aware that it bothers someone shouldn't go out of their way to make a big deal of it. But, again, if somebody thinks someone shouldn't wear shorts to church, and then they say, well, you can't wear them at your house either, they don't have the right to say that. And they have to recognize that if someone does wear shorts to church, they are not sinning, and I need to be careful of that. Now, if someone showed up in a swimsuit to church, that's a different scenario, assuming that it's someone that's a church member. If it's a visitor, we'd be kind. we recognize, hey, they don't know what we would normally do. They don't necessarily think through all these things the same way that we would. It's a complicated thing. And um, although I don't agree with all the quotes that were in the book with regards to the subject of modesty, I mean, he's quoting from some either secular or like way over here kind of uh, Christian authors with regards to how these different things are perceived. I think we have to recognize, rightly or wrongly, you go to one country, this thing is considered immodest. You go to another country, this thing is considered immodest. There is some sort of biblical corrective to both extremes. There's a biblical corrective that says, seeing ankles is not sinful. There's a biblical corrective that says, God gave us clothing for covering, so we should wear something more than, you know, almost nothing, you know? Where's the line between those sorts of things? It's a matter of wisdom, it's a matter of looking at biblical principles, it's a matter of recognizing that people are in different places. I cannot blame someone for what they wear as being the ultimate responsibility for my response to them. So if I see a woman wearing whatever, I can't say, oh, you know, it's okay if I lust after her because she chose to wear that. Alternately, I can't say that I will, I will only think right thoughts about someone if they wear exactly the things that I think that they should wear. 
Um, so there's that sort of issue. There's the what is appropriate in worship sort of issue, which is, again, we're supposed to come before God reverently. We're supposed to come before God with honor. But I think the primary focus of that begins with an internal sort of evaluation more so than an external appearance sort of evaluation. And I think sometimes we've tended to emphasize as long as I wear a suit and tie or a dress or whatever, I'm right with God. And, and you can equate the two things, but they're not identical. And so I think, again, this is one of those issues that we have to have to be patient with one another, have to be wise toward one another. Um, let's talk about the response of the people standing by for a second. Did they respond rightly? What should they have done? Okay. Right. Essentially, we don't want it to get to the spot of where Paul had to write the two women in his letter and say, hey, quit fighting, get along. Because the church should have done that first, right? And so that's where we'd have to say, you're being confrontational, you're being defensive, both of you need to think about how you can be humble and show love and respond properly in a situation. This is not a sin. This is not something that's more important in your relationship with this other person. So you need to think about how you cannot judge and how you can be humble and serve. And I think if we operate with that motivation, we may not land exactly where we would prefer everyone else to be but we will at least approach it with more grace and patience, which is the goal. All right, case study four. We've got about 10, 12 minutes thinking we can talk through this one. Getting together with your extended family on Easter after church. You have a big event planned with a nice meal and then a fun Easter egg hunt for the kids afterwards. The kids are all really excited. At the family event, a cousin you haven't seen for a while shows up. Do talk during lunch. She mentions offhand she has decided to become a practicing Wiccan. For those of you who might not know what that is, like a, a witch, you know, that sort of thing. She also talks about how Easter has become a special time to her because of the symbols of death and rebirth with the coming of spring. Should you cancel your Easter egg hunt? If so, what do you say to the kids? If your cousin finds out that plans have changed and asks you why you plan to skip it, what do you say? What are some reactions to this? Okay, jumping off point for the, yeah, okay. So there's a witnessing opportunity there, good. What else? Okay. Yeah, but is it possible to do things, so let me, let me phrase it this way. Does the meaning of symbols change over time? Yeah. Um, it doesn't have to, but it often does. Um, if you think about a lot of pagan symbolism, think about the Druids in AD 1000, actually sacrificing people in rituals. Druids today like to go out and watch nature. Kind of a different scenario, right? I think the same thing has happened with the stuff about Easter. Again, 
I have no plans for us to do an Easter egg hunt here at church. Just so we're clear. For one, it's super expensive. For two, why would we just be trying to replicate in a less effective way what a whole bunch of other places do with huge budgets, whatever, regardless. I just think there's far better things for our, us to do with our time on Easter for purposes of reaching people. That being said, if your family wants to do something like a hide-and-seek type activity using Easter eggs in your backyard, can we say that that is sinful? Particularly if you're all Christians and recognize this is not a worship custom, whatever, whatever, it's just like we're hiding these things, they're brightly colored, you know, whatever. I think that's pretty far removed from human sacrifice, birth and rebirth sort of things that this lady is talking about. But when she shows up and says something that for you is just a fun activity is for me a religious custom, we start bringing in some of the overtones from Romans and Corinthians, right? Because is an idol anything? No. Is the Easter egg a, a, a symbol that has power in and of itself to corrupt the soul? No. But if she sees you doing that and thinks that in some way it is a, a, an acceptance of her religious beliefs or in some way is more important than the things that you did at church that she didn't go to you with, then you have to say, am I willing to get, not do I have to give this up, but am I willing to at least consider giving this up for purposes of ministering to this person? Is it likely that this would take place? Probably not. But if it did, you have to say, am I willing to give up my rights? Am I willing to serve other people? Am I willing to prioritize the gospel? Am I willing to um, think about these issues carefully? All right. Any other quick thoughts on this one before we wrap up? Sure. So you could, you don't have to cancel it. You could just say, hey, this is a fun thing that we're doing. But I, yes. Right. Yeah. Sure. Right. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So my point is not that you have to skip it or that you have to do it, but rather just that we pause and think about it, say what's the most important goal. And again, we're sort of assessing the likelihood of and we may make the wrong call on this. How likely is this be to confuse this person about what they're doing, about what we're doing? If we think it's very unlikely, she recognizes it's just a game, great. If we think it's very likely, then we say maybe we'll back off on it or we'll, we'll, we'll rethink it a little bit. So again, these are not perfect scenarios. They are not 100% likely to happen, but hopefully they're tools for us to have kind of reviewed some of the things we've been talking about to think through them, to remember that this is our goal. Our goal is that we're aligned with this. The reality is there are areas in our lives that are aligned with this. There are areas in our lives that are aligned with our culture. There are areas in this that are aligned with our personal family practice. And we have to come and say, what does the Bible say? 
And then we have to categorize and say, here's a right and wrong issue. Here's a personal preference issue. Here's a family rule issue. Here's a what our church does issue. Recognize that there are differences of importance in all those sorts of things. To the extent that our conscience is convinced of any of them, we have to follow it. To the extent that someone else's conscience is convinced strongly of it, we have to be aware and sensitive of it. Our goal is not, you're over here and I'm fighting with you, you're over here and I'm fighting with you, but all of us are side by side, not exactly in the same spot, but we're working on coming toward what God has said. The more closely we're aligned to what God has said, hopefully, the more closely we're also aligned to each other, which is challenging and takes patience and love and the work. So, all right. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that you give us grace to love one another, to seek out your word, examine regularly what we are doing and say, is this something that pleases you? Is this something that is a biblical mandate? Is this something that I just think that is a good idea? Lord, I pray especially when I'm preaching and teaching that I would make that difference clear. Here's something that I think is a good idea versus here, here's what God says everybody must do. Um, Lord, because we do not want to be confused with human traditions becoming more important than biblical truth. We don't want to go to...